Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Stan Bush. Hi, this is Stephanie Calvert. This is John Payne. This is Jack Hughes. Hey everyone, this is Britt Lightning from Vixen. Hey everybody, this is Prescott Niles. Hi, I'm Jerry Stevens. Hello, I'm Kofi Baker. This is not a test, this is Play That Rock and Roll. I'm your host Joe Kay, and today our guest is Chad Cushions, author of Nothing's Bad Luck, The Lives of Warren Zevon. Last year, Chris and I completed our Excitable Boys miniseries, which was a look back at the life and career of this guy, Warren Zevon. And while doing that series, we relied heavily on Chad's writing for research purposes. Nothing's Bad Luck is a fantastic rock biography. It's one of the best books about music I've ever read. It's an absolute must-read for any fans of Warren Zevon, or anyone who wants to learn about Warren Zevon. I would recommend this book even if you're not terribly familiar with Warren Zevon, because this guy led such an extraordinary life that his story is quite captivating even beyond the music. So in this interview, we discuss why Chad wanted to write this book, how he went about doing it, and what he discovered during the research process, which was quite a bit. We also talk about some of the backstage politics that have kept Warren Zevon out of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame all of these years, including last year's uh, surprise nomination and subsequent snub. And Chad also shares some news about his latest writing project. Again, the book is called Nothing's Bad Luck, The Lives of Warren Zevon. You can get it on Amazon or wherever books are sold. And on a personal note, I have to say thank you to Chad for being such a wonderful guest. This was one of the most fun interviews I've ever recorded for this show, and I am always appreciative to talk about Mr. Zevon as we love to celebrate him here on this channel. Chad does not currently have an online presence, but he will soon. So when his website and social media are up, I will share those links on my social media and also in the description of this video, so be sure to check back soon. Otherwise, here is my conversation with the author of Nothing's Bad Luck, 
The Lives of Warren Zevon, Chad Cushions. Take us back to the very start of this project. What was the inspiration for you to write about Warren Zevon? And sort of what was the timeline of when you started researching and when it got published? I'm flattered. I hope you won't be bored with it. Uh, like you guys, I am a huge Warren Zevon fan. Um, I play piano. I'm a musician primarily just for fun. And he has been my musical hero for a number of years. At the time that I started it, it is my first book, and uh, the time that I started it, the only book that was in existence was Crystals, which I devoured immediately. And I enjoyed it, but it told me more about Warren the man than Warren the musician. You know, it didn't have as much about the creative process and, and his instruments and what was in his home studio and stuff like that. They had been divorced at that point. So the questions that were left unanswered for me were the ones where, how am I going to be able to replicate his sound? That's the stuff I want to know. And at the time, I was working at a, a local newspaper on Long Island, New York, where I'm from. And I had had the idea of maybe just doing a potential freelance article, just like Warren Zevon in the studio, something like that. And believe it or not, this, this was in 2010. And uh, a number of the engineers, musicians, and even a few of the producers that had worked with him all have websites, all have LinkedIn. They're all still in, you know, in the field. So I was hoping if for an article, if I could get like three of these guys to talk to me, that would be amazing. So I sent out a mass email to a dozen and it's the first time in my life all 12 wrote back, yeah, we can't wait to talk about Warren. And I was like, this is gonna be a big article. And when I presented it to a few of my buddies who are writers as well, they were like, that's a book proposal now, that's not, that's not an article anymore. And they were 100% right. So uh, immediately I thought writing like something very different than Crystal's. Uh, and I say that respect, you know, respectfully because hers is an oral history slash memoir. But I wanted to do something that was like a, as definitive as I could make just an objective bio of, of his work process first and foremost. And it, it took longer than expected because it was my first one. And I'm not trying to be morose. Uh, my mom had gotten sick and passed during the writing of it. So it ended up taking about eight years. The two books I've written after that only took three. But I'm also very fortunate that when I went to people to interview about Warren, uh, nobody knew who I was at the time. So it took a little bit of time to win over people for those interviews. Uh, but it was supposed to be an article that just expanded very, very quickly. Wow, that is fascinating. So tell us a little bit about the those people that uh, responded back to you, or maybe it might be other names uh, as far as your book goes, who sure. were some of the people that you spoke to that you felt were like the most valuable to the project or the most helpful, the most supportive? Who did you gain the most from uh, for the Well, it, it's hard because I don't want it to sound as though I'm playing favorites. That's the thing. Of but course, if I yeah. went down the, yeah, if I went down the list, uh, early on, I was so lucky to have gotten to speak with Aiden Bones Howe, who was the first producer that Warren ever worked with when he was still with Lyman Savell. Oh, okay. And much older now, but he had uh, produced, uh, I, I'm trying to remember if he produced The Turtles, but I know that it's that 60s era that he had worked in, and he was in his 20s at the time. And he had tons of vivid memories of working with Warren when Warren was a kid. So having that was really pretty cool 
to, to talk with. And I'm a huge Tom Waits fan, and he ended up working with Tom Waits after that. So after we wrapped, I'm like, tell me about working with him. He was, he was just a lot of fun. Uh, but he filled in gaps about that, and he put me on track to find Violet Sant'Angelo, who is the real Sabelle. She has since changed her name to Laura Kenyon, and she sells high-end real estate in New York City. And when I sent her an email at her real estate email, uh, real estate website, I said, are you Sabelle? And I got all capital letters, yes, it's me. So hearing about his high school days from her and the earliest instances of, of him in the studio were really cool. That was a lot of fun. Uh, like I said, I don't want to play favorites, but one of the most enjoyable ones was the marathon session with Body One Help. Because again, my main focus was what were the studio habits. Anyone that was in the sound, you know, the, the sound room with him, the engineers group, all that stuff was, was really, really uh, the most important. Uh, I am very fortunate, and we'll talk about this later. Um, I have become close friends with Anita Gevinson. She's awesome. Oh, yeah. And she had tons of stories that were not in uh, Crystal's book. She was right. unfortunately left out of that, that, that volume. But she had all the stories for about 1984 to 1985, which is a tremendous gap because that led to Warren's sobriety. So if we talk about his personal life, that was crucial to know what really set him in, uh, set him on the right track. Plus the writing of the songs that became uh, Sentimental Hygiene. Right. Uh, yeah, those were probably some of the big, big, big ones. But George Gruel and Duncan Ulrich were both tour managers for Warren in two different eras. So they gave me the road stories. So like I said, it's not a matter of playing favorites, is that each person in that group became a wealth of information for like big, big gaps of time that I didn't have information about. And if I may add, I don't mean to talk a blue streak, Duncan Ulrich was really helpful because he was there when Warren set up his home studio, first one. And he was one of the first uh, artists to use, you know, digital computer sound editing before you had Pro Tools, before you had all that. Warren didn't have money. He had to do it out of necessity. So Duncan filling me in on like the early programs that they used, that was pretty cool to hear. Yeah, no, that and it's it's awesome to read about too. Uh, Thank you. That, that, that's why I mean Warren has so many interesting parts of his life, and uh, you know, getting it all together in one book is is eye opening because unfortunately, so many people just think of him as the werewolves of London guy, but there's just so much more to that story. But as far as the book goes, you said this was your first book. Um, when you started writing it. Were there other books or maybe other authors or other biographies or anything that you read um, during the process of writing this that gave you inspiration or perhaps even guidance on how you wanted to present this book? Absolutely. And, and I appreciate you saying that. I, I, I wish that I had been able to tell him how much I was indebted to the example he set as a journalist. But if you've never read it, there are two books by Nick Toshis. I don't know if you know the name. He had passed away, I think, in 2019, but he wrote Hellfire, the Jerry Lee Lewis story, oh. which is unlike any rock biography I've ever read. It's not a rock biography. It feels like a Faulkner novel about the wild child of early rock and roll. And then about a decade later, he wrote Dino, which is a Dean Martin biography oh, that feels like a Martin Scorsese film. They don't feel like biographies. 
And I read both of those when I was in high school and I was working at a newspaper. My hero was always Elmore Leonard, the crime novelist, but I worked my way into nonfiction. And I, when I found biographies that felt like crime stories, that felt more like fiction, I thought, well, it would be wonderful to write something like this. I don't know if it comes across in nothing with bad luck, but those, those books really inspired the sound I, I would want to capture because I know for a fact Warren had read both of those and was a fan of them himself. Oh, that's excellent. And those are immediately two books now that I want to read. Um, They're great. Yeah, I recommend yeah. them very highly. Very cool. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. You know, I, I have a lot of conversations with authors on this channel because I really do appreciate good rock and roll journalism, good music journalism. I have a bookshelf full of rock bios and autobiographies and stuff like that. Um, but I I really only like to, on this show, speak to the authors that I feel have gone above and beyond uh, what a typical, you know, book might be. Um, there are some that, unfortunately... You know, it's got a nice cover and that's about it. Yours is an elite tier uh, music biography, in my opinion. I'm flattered by that. Thank you, Joe. Well, yeah, absolutely. And it's so cool to hear that your inspirations sound like also elite tier books that I want to check out. So I want in this moment now, I want you to give yourself a little credit here because this was a long research project. The, the work you did shows through on these pages. Tell me a little bit about some of the highlights of your the discovery process uh when you were researching the book what were the i guess pieces of information that that you really discovered and and you know brought to the surface in warren's life 
um, that might otherwise might have been lost to time. I appreciate all the compliments. That means so much to me because uh, I, I really wanted this book to be some something special, not out of arrogance, but because I, lo I love Warren. Uh, unfortunately, during his lifetime, he had a lot of bad press. Yeah. And by the time, yeah, by the time he was clean and sober, the press had kind of vanished until he was dying, and then they paid attention to him again. And I learned uh, a few things, like, pragmatically, but about him especially, and almost every single person I spoke to, in some variation, said these words to me. He was a different person after he got sober. And it felt like writing two biographies because you have the excitable boy and then you have a, a much older, wiser, playfully calling himself Mr. Bad Example, which means I learned my lesson. And you have those two polarities. So anybody I spoke to who knew him after he was sober only had the most warm, beautiful stories about about his kindness and, and, and things like that, which is not what you read about in Rolling Stone, except for Paul Nelson. And, and, and you know, anything else that you read would, and I say Rolling Stone, but all the magazines of that era zeroed in on, on the scandal stuff. But that's not who he was once he, once he lived the second half of his life. And I was told that by every single person. Um, so hearing the really nice stories special to me, one of the things, and I'm allowed to say this because on the record he said, I insist you put this in, is that Warren not only got clean and sober, but he acted as an AA sponsor for someone else. Oh, he, wow. Yeah, Nico Bolas, I believe it was AA, but he said he was in a 12-step program. He's one of the most important sound engineers. If you look him up, and he, uh, he worked on the ones for Virgin Records. He's close friends with Andy Slater. And Nico gave the most amazing interview about uh, sentimental hygiene in particular, but he really loved Warren as a person and said that I went to him for strength when I needed it. And I'd really like it if you put that in the book. I said, I, I will now. You don't hear stuff like that. Yeah. And how he would give gifts to all of the, the bands that opened for him. You know, in the, in the late 80s and into the 90s, he didn't have a set band that would tour anymore. Wadi was A-list, you know, and the Eagles, even as solo artists, who were usually too busy to get that band back together. So one of the things that Warren uh, usually would do is scout for a not-so-famous but really tight group of young musicians that had their own band. Like, The Odds uh, was at least one. I believe that they were his band for the tour of Mr. Bad Example. I think that was that. But... You know, he would see, like, guys in their 20s know how to really play. And he said, if you're my band on this tour, you're the opening act. And oh. he did that a couple of times. And then all of them said he was a mentor on the road. The only rule was that I don't want to see you guys drinking and don't keep the weed around me. I can't be near it. Okay. But he would, but he would make book recommendations. He would give them gifts of, of books that he thought they should read. Like, you're writing lyrics? Why aren't you writing? You should be writing. And he'd give them books by his favorite authors to try and inspire them. That's not the same guy that recorded, you know, Bad Luck Streak in Dancing School. <laughs> and, I, and I loved hearing that paternal type of mentor figure that he became later on. That was amazing. And finally, uh, when you said stuff that I learned, I loved learning about his self-production. Because he really tackled that to keep his hands busy. I think... Um, being clean and sober and being a bachelor, one of the things I think about Warren 
is that he took on tons of projects and tried to better himself to resist the temptation of lapsing. And I think he became really tech, tech savvy in the 90s and really babied his home studio. So learning about his home production was really uh, eye-opening for me. And uh, especially what I believe to be the real reasons why he's not in the Rocky Bowl Hall of Fame. Uh-huh. That was new to me, too. That was new to me, too. Yeah. So that's, yeah. But we can get into that in greater detail. I was very flattered that you told that story uh, during the series. Uh, this is not to brag. I think my book was the first one that told that story. And I can thank George Gruel for leading me to it. Okay, yeah. For those who don't know, would you? Are, we're going to get into the Rock Hall right now. So, for those sure. listening who don't know, can you uh, recount that information you found about uh, uh, perhaps some of the politics behind why sure. uh, Zivon's not in the Rock Hall? Without without boring you or your listeners, do you want me to start with the George story that led to it? Yeah, yeah. Why not? We- okay. I I was finishing up the book. And this is much later. George Bull uh, was one of the first people who agreed to an interview. And we got along really well. And we got along well enough where I even interviewed him for a photography magazine after our interviews for Warren. And we stayed in contact. George is a lot of fun. Yeah. And we were close enough where maybe four or five years after we had done the first interview, he had been living in upstate New York. He lives in Arizona now but he had been living in upstate New York. So we were on the same time zone and maybe at nine o'clock at night, he called my cell phone. I thought something was wrong, you know, like, Hey George, what's going on? And in the background you hear he's at an airport. Like you can hear the announcers and stuff. So I'm about to get on a flight. But before I ran out of the house, I had to tell you something. If there's time for you to put it in the book, what's going on? Like I'm all, I'm all excited. Like there's a scoop. And he said, I just got a royalty check. That was 30 years ago, and I had never been paid, and it arrived this afternoon before I left the house for the airport. And we're both laughing. I'm like, please, you have to explain, because it sounds like you're telling me a joke right now. And he said, after the Eagles broke up, Don Henley invited Warren to be a backup singer on his solo album, Can't Sit Still. I'm like, okay. He goes, Warren wasn't in the best shape in those days, so I was his driver. And he pulled me into the singing circle, so I sang on it, too. And I can't sing. Like, really? He goes, it's taken 30 years for me to get a royalty check for singing on on that album. He goes, I just thought you'd really like to know that. Click. And then he hangs. (laughs) That's how he signs off. I'm like, I want to know more about that album. Yeah. And lo, lo and behold, if you go back to Billboard magazine and Variety and all those, Henley had to pay out of pocket for a lot of the promotion on that album because of the cutbacks on the older artists, thanks to Bob Krasnow and the heads of Electric Asylum at the time. You know, they referred to those guys as dinosaurs. And then because the Eagles had disbanded, each one of them was signed elsewhere. I think Geffen uh, was where Joe Walsh went. And yeah, but the court case that happened, well, the Eagles broke up. And even when they were still a band, I don't know if they necessarily got along. But they stayed a business unit. You know, the Beatles broke up, but they remained intact as Apple. They still were business partners even after the Beatles. The Eagles were still all, you know, a a business unit, and they were all still represented by uh, Irving Asloff. Right. As was Warren. So when, like any good representation would do, uh, Asloff 
started the court case to help these guys recoup money that they had laid out for their tours and for self-promotion and all that stuff, Warren was already living in Philadelphia at his worst and didn't follow any of the court cases in the trade magazines. So he didn't even know his name was being brought up in court. But the punchline, the sad punchline, is that Azov won. And the, the, they got their money back, but at the same time, it took years to recoup the money, which is why George didn't get paid for 30 years. They got paid slow, slow, slow. Um, and there was uh, an unspoken blacklist for those guys. I, I believe, I will say that humbly, I believe, because Bob Krasnow ended up being one of the founders of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And Jan Wenner is one of the founders, and he already had blacklisted Warren from Rolling Stone. And if you have two out of five founders who hate your guts, yeah, you're not really going to stand much of a chance of getting in. And the Eagles went into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame right away, mm-hmm. but none of them are in there as solo artists. It's almost like we know the fans are, are going to see through the transparency if we don't induct them. Henley's not in there as a solo artist, which makes no sense. Fry's not in there. Joe Walsh, well, you know, these they're all legends. Yeah, James so It doesn't make sense on. that they're, yeah. And Warren finally got nominated, but, and I say this as a diehard fan, I'm not necessarily expecting him to get in. Yeah. And that's not to upset people. He deserves to be in. But, I mean, over the past year, we also heard from Leon Wenner, who makes it in and who doesn't anyway. Right. So there's a lot of people that should be in there too. Yeah. Well, you know, I we said on the podcast that uh, when uh, Warren was winning in the fan vote, he was like ahead of Iron Maiden, which seemed pretty impressive given Iron Maiden's fan base. But my my theory on that is that Iron Maiden has been nominated and snubbed by the hall for years now. So when they do get nominated, I don't think their fans show up to bother to do the fan vote. So it's interesting. Yeah. So it was, you know, Warren probably got ahead, you know, just because the Iron Maiden fans were like, this is a crock. I'm not wasting my time with it anyway. Whereas the Warren fans, at least in the social media groups, it was like, holy crap, he got nominated. We got it all, all hands on deck. We have got to get him to win this vote. And he still came in third. (laughs) Yeah. No, I do agree with you. But, you know, I, I, this is, a, again, everything I'm saying is opinion. I have to preface that. Sure. But I, I think with Warren, because he's affiliated with bands but wasn't a member of a band, Yeah. there's a loneliness to how he's not in. And he has a lot, he has a small but really loyal fan base that view him as the ultimate outsider. If the guys from Iron Maiden or any band are like, screw it, we don't care, that's awesome. Yeah. But if nobody's going to speak for Warren now that he's gone, yeah. His fans take that personally, and I'm one of them, and I get it. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, there's so many people that deserve to be in there. But even if you take out of the equation the fact that he had a beautiful solo career, whether it made money or it didn't, the, the, it's an incredible discography. Just think about how he was on the flip side of Happy Together. You said that, you know, you talked about right. it in the series. His career goes back that far. He was roommates and best friends with David Marks from the Beach Boys. He was part of that scene throughout all day. Everybody knew him. He, he hung out with Brian Wilson while Brian Wilson was recording Smile. He's not on the album, but he wanted to meet him. Like David Marks said, you want to go over? He's, he's recording right now. 
he was a, a key player through so many eras of rock and roll and so many musicians revere him. It just doesn't make sense to me that this is someone who doesn't have that, that honor. Yeah. And he, I, there's a chance that he could get it at some point, but we don't know if he would care anymore or not. At this point, I think it would be nice for his family. I don't speak for them, obviously, but I think yeah. it would be nice for them to be able to say dad's in there. Yeah. And I think his fans really want it more than anyone else. Yeah. So, you know, we'll see. Iron Maiden will get in, by the way. The idea that they had the first big FM hit has to count for something. Yeah, you would you think, know? but it seems more and more that the Rock Hall uh, inducts people that are going to bring, you know, people to the TV show. You know, it, it feels more and more like a, you know, a TV event and they're, they're, they're looking at star power as opposed to, you know, uh, art, art, artistic relevance, I guess. But no, I agree with that. You know, the Rock Hall conversation <laughs> that's too much for 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 us here. But uh let's talk about real quick before we leave the topic entirely. For sure. those who don't know, you know, Jan Winner from uh, Rolling Stone, as you mentioned, you know, another person who hated Warren's guts. Uh can you talk a little bit about why there was bad blood between those guys? And uh, and also, were you surprised that Warren even got nominated? Uh, well, I'll start with that one. I was yeah. surprised. I was yeah. for a number of reasons. The first one is that he had long been unofficially blacklisted and I never thought I'd see his name on there to begin with. Right. I think fans uh, like you, myself and all the fans out there who actually who actually bought this. Uh, the real, you know, the, the diehard Warren Zevon fans are the ones who have always been pushing and pushing and pushing. And, and his family, of course. Okay. Jordan and Ariel are, have always really, really wanted that. So the shout-out has to go out because they've always advocated to get that in there. Yeah. Um, but this is, like I said, uh, I was shocked for two reasons. And it's weird to bring this up, but I'll say it. It's also that as, as amazing as his music is, we're also living at a time period where whether the artistry is there or not, subject matter is not necessarily being evaluated by the younger generations based on quality, but on content. And Warren was actually a really good guy, especially once he was clean and sober. I preface that because I've interviewed, I don't know how many of his ex-girlfriends who also, I'm not going to name names, but would cry and get emotional just thinking about him. Oh, wow. Okay. To this day. So even the bad breakups led to strong friendships. With Crystal, they stayed, they, they were able to rekindle their friendship, at least. So, yeah, he was a monster when he was at his worst, but he made actual amends through AA. That has to count for something yes. that has nothing to do with us. It has nothing to do with the fans. He was a person who had family and friends, and he went to them and apologized. So if they can view him as being someone worthy of, of recognition, uh, I think it's, it's okay to, to look at him in that regard, too. But that being said, I know that uh, reading about his life and what he was like in the 70s can be tough reading, especially for a new generation of discoverers, mm. which is why I, I beg people to read. If you're going to read the book, please read the whole book, because the yeah. second half of his life was another story. And that's that can be anyone really if they admit that they're wrong and they apologize. I think that that's what redemption means. And I think that that was his life goal after a certain point. Uh, but as far as Jan Wenner is concerned, there's the two instances that you're probably aware of, and it is in the book. Uh, Warren ended up taking Wenner's assistant, one of his assistants, home to his apartment. 
which really shouldn't bother young winner on principle unless he had plans of his own. Right. I don't know. I'm not saying anything, but at least a few journalists pointed it out and compared it to The Godfather. Why the yeah. horse's head ended up in the bed? Same same type of thing. Um, but also, uh, he was present when Warren had to have uh, Springsteen love your shirt. Springsteen show preempted. Bruce loved Warren and did. He preempted one of his own concerts to take care of him when he was uh, having a really bad episode at one of the shows. And that was also in the 70s. My personal opinion, my personal opinion is not those two instances, actually. I think it comes down to Paul Nelson, who wrote arguably the greatest work of literature about Warren ever written. And to me, he was like, uh, like an angel that I would pray to to try and get the book right because Paul passed away before he could write this book. But oh. this is really the book that I think he should have written if you've read his Rolling Stone uh, profile on Warren. Okay. Um, if, if anyone's not familiar, Paul Nelson was uh, one of the best writers that Rolling Stone ever had and wrote very literary profiles of the artists that he loved. But he also took a very long time to write his articles. Um, shout out to my friend Kevin Avery, who wrote the definitive biography of Paul, Everything is an Afterthought. If you're interested in any of the subjects we're talking about, definitely read that book. It's excellent. Uh, but uh, Paul Nelson also was uh, one of the people who orchestrated Warren's intervention. And then uh, he was there. Yeah. Imagine a journalist being that close with his subject that he tries to help get him sober. Him and Jackson and Crystal, uh, they were the key players for that. But Paul Nelson did do that and then wrote an incredibly long profile about Warren's alcoholism and supposed sobriety. I say supposed because this is, this is part one of the story. Yeah. Paul Nelson took so long to write it and eventually had arguments with Winner because he wanted the article to run unedited. And he said, if you have to cut it in half, you did it for Hunter Thompson, why can't you do it for this? That was the thing. Remember, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas was a two-part article first that got split into two issues before becoming a book. Paul Nelson wanted to write something at length about alcoholism and sobriety with Warren as the center, and Wenner refused. Right. And when he missed a couple of deadlines, it was taken out of his hands and edited by someone else. And it ran like that. And it not only ran like that, but Warren was on the cover of Rolling Stone once. And it's that mock crucifixion cover, if you've seen it. Mm -hmm. But when that ran, he swore up and down that he was sober. And after the issue ran, he lapsed. And Wenner had a big problem with the fact that he had put him on the cover and had arguments with one of his best writers who eventually left the magazine after that. And Warren had gone back to his old ways. You know, forgetting that alcoholism is a disease. Right. But that was a source of anger. And it is in the book. You have to remember years later in the 80s, uh, Warren dated Merle Ginsburg, who worked for Rolling Stone and wanted to do a piece on Warren's comeback with sentimental hygiene. And according to her, quote was Jan Wenner refused and said, the only thing Warren Zevon's good is uh, he's good at fucking up. That was his quote. So it's just so many reasons why he didn't 
like him or cover him. Although he got coverage when he was dying. Right. Of course. That's there it is. Yeah, that's about it. It's amazing that, you know, slights, you know, someone someone so high up in the industry can uh, you know, hold a grudge to to that degree. Um for so but, long. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But now given have you been following this, given, you know, how he put his foot in his mouth uh last year and you know made some pretty dumbass comments he seems to be out of that world do you think his departure uh makes perhaps already small chances of of warren getting inducted maybe even a little a little better or do you think it's inconsequential i think it's inconsequential and i don't say that because i don't care i'm saying it because at this point warren himself would probably be like who cares because he had so many heroes that aren't in there as well like i said i think it means a lot to fans like us and I think it would mean something to his family and his grandchildren. So I want to see it happen. He stands the best chance of it happening that he ever did. Yeah. Um, but I, I want to say something. I hope it doesn't get me in trouble, but I'm going to voice my opinion. He said he had his foot in his mouth. I'm going to say more than that. I think he accidentally showed who he really is. And yeah. I say that because uh, as much as I love rock and roll, my favorite music is jazz, blues, and soul. Yeah, and I always wondered where my guys were in that magazine, and he kind of revealed why that is. So it was more than foot and mouth. It's that we took a peek behind the curtain, and I don't think that he can really get out of it that easily. But I agree with that wholeheartedly. I've read a lot about Rock over the years. You know, we could probably do a whole episode on the, you know the shortcomings of that guy. Uh, I've I've never seen him as. Uh, an advocate for music in the way he thinks he is. And I'm, I'm glad he's going to be out of the picture now. Cause uh, yeah, like I said, this is all opinion. I feel the same way though. Um, but without uh, his oversights, you wouldn't have vibe magazine or essence or source yeah. or any of the magazines that had to happen because right. there was no coverage. in Rolling Stone. Right. So yes. everything does happen for a reason to, to a degree. We can bring it back to Warren. If you want to have me back, my next book is about soul music, so I'd love to talk with you again. Oh, great. Yes, we will touch on that. But before we do, uh, let's talk about one positive that came out of this whole Rock Hall fiasco. Uh, Someone who is, like us, a big fan of Warren, who was very upset that he was snubbed last year, is Shooter Jennings. Yeah. Took his frustration about the Rock Hall and did a residency in LA and then produced this awesome uh, live album, which is Shooter and his band playing Warren Zevon tracks all night. Uh, We talked about this on the show uh, a few weeks back. I really like this record. Have you had a chance to listen to that? Yes, but I don't have it on vinyl. Where'd you get it? Oh! (laughs) That's gorgeous, man. Yeah, I know, I know. I'm really happy I have this one. Um, uh, Yeah, I I I think I got it off of his website. You know, I, I don't, I'll be honest, I don't buy a lot of new vinyl. Uh, you know, I, I have old vinyl. It used to be fun to collect because you could get it cheap. So I'm very picky about new projects they actually spend the money on. That one was gotcha. totally worth it. What are your it's thoughts gorgeous. on uh, Shooter's record? I think that, uh, first of all, he's the right guy to be doing it. He's got the yes. sound and the tone. You know, if anybody's going to, if anybody's going to bring some attention to it, thank you. Yeah, like I thought, I thought these, the, you know, I, I'm weary of cover bands. These were not just covers. This was this was a this was an album of his own, the same way like you know, uh, Wynton Marsalis would do an album of Duke Ellington. Is it a, is it a cover? Not really. 
right. it's it's someone reinterpreting it who's an artist themselves and i think that that was it was really good timing because that's an that's the type of advocacy that we need yeah there's just so much that you know there's just so many ways that jackson brown can say get him in right you know which is amazing and david letterman to the best of my knowledge has done what he can yeah there's just so much that these guys can really do it it, it takes younger artists who appreciate the music to step up and, and start taking over carrying the torch for for the advocacy so something like that made me really, really, really happy. It was oh. to me, it was more than an homage. It was its own album, which was the songs of Warren Zevon, and that's what you see when someone enters the Great American Songbook, oh, which which is where Warren really kind of sort of belongs, you know. So yeah, big fan, loved it. Oh, well put. Yes, about the songbook, a hundred percent. I agree with that, uh, and. Uh, along with the benefits of the advocacy, it also serves as at least a consolation prize for us Zevon fans who didn't get him in the rock hall. At least we have this new awesome uh, record. True. So uh, we're going to turn now to Chris. Chris has a couple of Zevon questions for you, and then we'll hey, then we'll wrap up after that. Sure. Hey. So I was wondering. Um, so first of all, uh, ain't that pretty at all? Is that the quintessential Zevon song? Am I settling a bet with the two of you? <laughs> I'm trying to remember. Well, I'm trying to remember when I listened to your series, uh, which one of you loved that song and who didn't? Don't take it no, personally. I'm trying I, to remember because I remember this came I, up. Yeah, I know. I'm the guy who loved the song. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a great song. It is a great song. I don't know if it's quintessential, in my humble opinion, only because. Okay. It was where Warren was at in a specific time and place. He sang that at the end of tours, at the end of concerts, when he wasn't crazy about how it went. So that, as a joke to the audience, he would perform that as an encore when he wasn't too enthralled with audience response or his own performance. Now, I love the song. Oh. Yeah, I love the song but I think that there are a few other ones that he wrote over the years that kind of encapsulate his philosophy a little bit more, but that really was kind of him at his angriest. So it's, it's a great song for what it is, but I think, I think there are a few others that got more of his humor and more of the mellow character that he became across. I love that that was your first question for me. <laughs> it is a great song though, though I, do, I do love the song. Well, what do you think is, is like, what would be the, the quintessential Zevon song for you? I'm glad you asked. Uh, Leave my monkey weird. alone. <laughs> yeah, the extended dance version. Right, <laughs> right, Joe? Jesus. Hey, man, Andy Slater had a lot of really cool ideas, and it's just a matter of which ones were going to hit and which ones weren't, you know? <laughs> I approve of George Clinton. I don't yes. know too many people that dance to Warren Zevon to begin with, except for Warren, you yeah. know? So uh, if anything, I would love like a really funky extended one of, uh, oh my God, what was your favorite? The, the, his, his disco song. Nighttime oh, in the Switching Yard. Night, yes. Oh, it's a great song. <laughs> um, song. Uh, if I had to pick one song that I think, all right, everyone always says Werewolves of London because that's what people know. But to me, if someone wanted to really explore Warren as an artist and they were unfamiliar and I had to pick one track that kind of sampled every single element of his philosophy as an artist, 
it would be desperados under the knees. Mm. Um, okay. I, and it's weird saying that because it's early in his career, and I believe he became an even better writer. But the maturity that he showed at, at such a young age, writing it when he did, it's also that that song is not only beautifully written, it's autobiographical, it has the dark humor, it's so California. If you look at who's on the track and that it's produced by Jackson Brown, it's all of the elements that you think of when you think of Warren Zevon in one track. So it's, it's, it's maybe my personal favorite, and a lot of people I interviewed said that it was their favorite, but I think he became an even better songwriter later. But to me, that's the, that is the Warren Zevon song that I would recommend to anyone to get this song. Yeah, I mean, if, if California falls into the ocean, like statistics and uh, the mystics say it will, you know, it's yeah, it's it's, it's beautiful, it's gorgeous, um, it's gorgeous, absolutely. and it, the humor, the humor is it's so warm, the way it's even delivered, yeah. that's the one. But I will add to I that, just, if I may, it's not nearly as famous, but at the end of his life, there's one song that I think is a very fitting, unofficial companion piece for all the same reasons. Genius. Okay. The song Genius oh, yeah. by Rise Here. There's something about the composition, the type of humor that's in it, and the idea that it was the last time that he got to work with a string section. I feel like those two would have made an incredible posthumous A and B side memorial. I would have paired those together. Yeah, that's off of uh, my rides here, right? And it's uh, yeah. it was a Matahari Genius. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great song. Also, probably the best Great-ness. song off that album. I mean, well, actually, the, and, and this leads me into that, you know, Hunter S. Thompson, the, that track off of there. Um, yeah. What was, you know, like what their relationship was? Like, because I mean, yeah. I'm a huge Hunter S. Thompson fan as well. And I'm just wondering sort of like what that dynamic was and what their relationship was like. I loved Hunter Thompson when I was younger, too. Um, I only say that because I still love reading him. But if you're a writer... There's just so much you can read of him before it starts to bleed into what you're writing. And that's bad. So I try not to read Thompson too much because he's too, he's, yeah, it, he, he's a voice that gets stuck in your head really quickly. It's, it's so unique. Uh, Warren was a huge fan of Thompson first because you have to remember all the, the shit we were talking about with Jan Wenner was going on when Thompson was still working for the, paper, for the magazine. Uh, he was still on the masthead at the time. So their paths crossed as early as the 70s. And I don't know if they spent time together at that point, but there was a mutual appreciation where by the late, by the late 80s, early 90s, they were at least corresponding with each other. Because Duncan Ulrich, who was his road manager, used to say Warren would take me, you know, when we were on the road, we'd stop at Woody Creek so he could say hi to Hunter. And so those visits at least became somewhat semi-regular by like the, eight, the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, I don't think that they ever intended to collaborate on song together. That was a surprise, I think, to Thompson that he was even asked. But I, don't, I, I would have to look in the book for the name of it. But Warren even, um, even uh, helped him towards, towards the end of Thompson's own life uh, with... Uh, there was political rallies where Warren would show up and perform music for, for candidates that Thompson was also behind. So he got him, he got Warren very, uh, poli- like on the political radar a little bit because Thompson never really got away from that. But they had a shared love of a lot of the same artists and they had the same fam- fam- uh, favorite artists. 
they both loved Bob Dylan, and they connected on their shared appreciation of certain ones. But, and, and I'm not going to name names because it was off the record, I will tell you that when Warren was ill, Thompson was not necessarily the best influence. Because Warren was uh, dying of cancer and shouldn't be drinking or smoking, and it's not good to hang out uh, hang out with Dr. Gonzo, right? Who who had no choice but to take no for an answer and didn't like hearing that. So, yeah, I, I was told that by a few people that not necessarily an argument, but they they were a little different towards each other at the end because Warren wanted to live. Yeah. <laughs> His his old habits were just that they they were old habits by then. What effect do you think Zevon's childhood had on him? You know, to to the extent that he was raised by a effectively like a low tier, like mob enforcer, basically. Like, what do you think that did to him in in I, his worldview? And the that's a that's a good one. I like that. I think we're all probably who we were at 10 years old, amplified when we get older. And I think Warren probably, I, I did say this line in the book, I think after growing up with his father, music and danger were always entwined together. And I really believe that that was the thing. I think that he saw the violence that his father lived as not necessarily cool, because from what I understand from the interviews, they had, they had a tough relationship, those two. But he loved his dad, and his dad was also his financial benefactor before he started making music money. So he always wanted to impress his father by not being a criminal, by being a successful musician. But I think that Warren also toughened himself up because his, his dad was a tough guy. I think that. Uh, but I think... He also, it, it can't be a coincidence that Warren loved crime fiction and, and loved putting those themes into his music because he was surrounded by it to an extent living with his dad. Um, if you go back to his song, uh, Mama Couldn't Be Persuaded, almost everything in that song actually did happen. That's one of the most biographical, autobiographical songs he ever wrote. That's all true. And as for Stumpy's Yvonne, uh, he was low tier, but you'd be surprised how respected he was in his industry. Uh, he owned more than one carpet store, you know, like the song, he owned more than one which were used uh, for meetings and as a front for, for guys. And the FBI was following him for about 15 years. So whatever he was up to, he, was, he had a reputation for what he did. Plus he was Mickey Cohen's best man. Right. So, yeah, he really knew people, which, which is kind of interesting to me. But I think the real dynamic and, the, and the, the real dichotomy with Warren is that his parents were so different. The age gap was tremendous between his mother and his father, and his mother came from this strict Mormon upbringing, and she ended up marrying a Jewish gangster who's almost double her age. So you have this huge dichotomy of these two, these two that as their only child is this, this interesting yin-yang household um, that he grew up in. And at different points of his life, he was raised by his mom, then he was raised by his dad, and he'd go back and forth. And I don't know this, but I could imagine that whichever house he was living in, he had to be a different warrant as well. By the time you become an artist, there's some splintering going on with what your narrative voice is going to be. And I think he very creatively fused that into a very weird hybrid 
genre that we can't really describe. You know, it's like, how do you describe a Warren Zevon song? Well, just look at look at the guy's life. How could he possibly have written anything mainstream after after a life like that? I want to circle back to and, and get your take on, I think, the only other Zevon book that can even be mentioned in the same sentence as yours. And we mentioned it <laughs> earlier. Uh, Crystal's wow. book, I'll Sleep When I'm yep. Dead. I read this alongside yours, and they're very different books, as we established. Um they, you know, and, and they both, I think, are very impressive. Now, I've read a lot of rock and roll biographies, and I will say I am always just a little suspicious um, or on guard, perhaps is a better way to put it, about books from the artists themselves or from, like, the estate or the official approved story because I always worry that there is a risk of those books falling into certain trappings. Axe grinding, narratives, legend building, myth making, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. I don't, there there wasn't anything, for me at least, obviously problematic about Crystal's book. Not in the same way, you know, Ozzy's autobiography is. Uh, <laughs> but when you read this book, do you think... Uh, well, what's your read on it? Do you think there were any missteps as far as those sort of trappings go, you know, or, or, or what do you feel as, as far as this, you know, as this work is? No, I, I can say this very uh, respectfully because Crystal was great to me. She gave oh, me good. a wonderful interview. Yeah she, yeah. she gave me a wonderful interview early on. I went to her first. Yeah. And so uh -huh. I don't have anything negative to say about her and the family. She okay. went on the record and I spoke with Jordan and, and exchanged only one email with Ariel. And they're wonderful people, but they didn't want to go on the record just in general. Their dad got a lot of bad press. So Jordan had my favorite line. Uh, when, when I asked him if I could do the book, he said, if you, I asked him, uh, are you working on a book? Because I don't want to step on toes. He's like, I'm not working on one. If you want to interview all my dad's ex-girlfriends, be my guest. That was that was Jordan's <laughs> line. I never forgot that. I thought, but that's what I ended up doing. It was, yeah. it was a dozen of them, um, but never at the same time. It was right. monogamous after a certain point, but each one had a different story about a different creative time period. Yeah. Uh, with Crystal's book, I don't have any real criticism other than when I first read it, I knew from just a cursory look online what his problems had been. So that didn't surprise me too, too much. And I had read about alcoholism, so I was prepared. Uh, and I don't even mean this as a criticism. It's not Crystal's fault. There were gaps in detail during, like, the late 80s and the 90s and some of the creative process stuff. But it's not her fault. They were divorced. Right. That's the only reason that that's not in there. She wasn't there for that. So it's not that I think she omitted it out of, out of uh, you know, any kind of will, uh, bad, uh, feelings or will ill or anything like that. I think it's the reason that I had to speak with Warren's significant others is because I needed to speak with the people that were there during those albums. Like Anita, so, who you mentioned earlier? That's the other thing that I was going to name. The oh. only other criticism, and I don't mean this to, to, to take a pot shot at anyone, yeah. is whatever their relationship is, has nothing to do with me, but yeah. Anita was not a minor figure in his life. They were engaged. Yeah. She was his fiance. She was not a mistress or an ex-girlfriend. She they were engaged and they lived together. Right. And she was instrumental in his sobriety. Yeah. She's the one who pushed him to call Andy Slater back so that he could have a comeback. And Andy Slater's the one who, yeah. 
Andy Slater left a bunch of messages on the machine. Warren didn't want to talk to anyone. She's like, I think you should talk to this guy. He might know what he's talking about. Right. Kind of important, you know? (laughs) And and even uh, the idea that she was there when he wrote a lot of my favorite songs on Sentimental Hygiene. He, he he called her at work to tell her what was going on with, you know, uh, Boom Boom Mancini. He was oh. watching the fight, you know, and, and, and they watched all that stuff together. Uh, she was a big part of his life. And it was it was eye opening to me uh, to find her name's not in the book. I had yeah. to find out who she was. But once I interviewed her, we became well, I, I'm so happy to say this. We become very good friends. And she had a ton of stories that Warren Zevon fans would want to hear. It's not stuff that was minor. And I was very lucky that I, I had that opportunity to, to put that in my book. Was he with her at the end of his life? No, the last and- time that, uh, no, he, uh, they broke up when he went into rehab. He had helped him get sober oh. to an extent. Uh, I mean, nobody, he had a huge support system, but at the time, he let uh, he did let people down at the time, and it's hard to rekindle those friendships. But they were together up until the point when he went and visited his cousin Sanford Zevon, and his upstate New York. And Sanford is the one, San, the real Sandy Zevon is the one who helped him get into a rehabilitation clinic, the real detox mansion. Yeah. And uh, Anita visited him there, and they broke up while he was in rehab because somewhat amicably it had to happen because he he needed to focus on himself and it's not a secret Anita had had uh, at least one sibling who had similar problems and there was so much that she was able to take at that age but they did remain friends they remained friends and they did continue to talk with each other after he moved back to LA and stuff like that so it's interesting. He would have these bad breakups, but then they would always, always stay friends with him after the fact. So he didn't completely burn most bridges. Most people welcomed him back once he became sober. And that was wonderful. It was wonderful hearing those stories more than anything else. Well, I'm glad you said what you said about Crystal's book, just because I've I've always felt, and, th- and this might be, you know, the only two books I can think of that sort of have this dynamic where uh, they pair great together. You know, when I read two Dylan books or multiple Dylan books together for our Dylan project, I often felt like, oh, man, I'm going over the same ground again and again. Not with, not at all the case with your book and Crystal's. So, so anyone I who hope reads- she feels the same way. Yeah, yeah. I loved her book when I first read it. I just had more questions. That's really what necessitated my book is it's not because I had hard, harsh feelings towards her book. I, I, I loved it. I just uh, I wanted more. You know, Absolutely. No, though, they yeah. pair together really well. Okay, well, as we start wrapping up here, uh, you know, a curiosity of mine is, you know, you worked on this project going all the way back to 2010, and I think the book yeah. was published originally in 2018, so that's a lot of Warren Zevon over a pretty long stretch of time. Are you able to listen to his music today without it making you, without it feeling like work? It never did. Wow, Thank okay. <laughs> that's impressive. Because that's Listen, not I'm an answer we've done before. I am very fortunate that the two music biographies that I have written provided me with the best possible soundtrack. Because with Warren, man, I never get tired of Warren Zevon. And it was awesome reading the books that he loved and listening to the artists that he loved. So if you pick a hero to write about, it's a masterclass in what made them tick. And with Bonham, you know, 
he was in my second book is John Bonham. Led Zeppelin was the twelfth band that he was in. So going back and listening to the you know the the early British bands that he was in uh, in the early '60s and stuff, I, it was a masterclass in British invasion. You know, listening to all this stuff never got boring to me. And although I'm not so much uh, as big of a fan of the show as I used to be, I don't know how how well it's going to age. If you've never seen Californication with David Duchovny, the first three seasons very, very prominently features Warren all over the place. And one of the things that I thought was hysterical is the lead character says every time he finishes one of his books, he smokes weed, drinks whiskey, and listens to Warren Zebo. So uh, yeah. I, I indulge in one of the three that each time I finished something, Warren does get played on purpose because that was the first book. So there's a thank you to Warren each time I finish anything. Um, yeah, and I have to recommend this if it's still there. Have you guys, either of you, checked out uh, Internet Archive, the nonprofit website? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you yes, know I, about like yeah. the 150 bootlegs of Warren's live concerts that Jordan allowed to be posted? Oh, no. <laughs> That's. Oh. We're going to exchange info. Jordan is the man, and he allowed that. There are um, incredible live performances that Warren gave from the 70s up until the late 90s that are all on this webpage. If you Google, uh, Google uh, whatever search engine, you know, uh, Internet Archive, Warren Zevon, it should pop up if they're still there. And one of the things that's the coolest is if uh, you listen to Learning to Flinch, that's assembled from over 100 performances. There are full concert outtakes on that page. Nice. So I'll have to send it to you guys, but any of your listeners that want to check that out, uh, I think it's still there. But, but yeah, there's over 100 boots that the family allowed. And there's some really, really cool stuff and some really cool covers that you might never knew one performed in concert too. I love hearing him cover Van Halen. Yeah! <laughs> That's yeah. A, what, what song by Van Halen? We've been covering, uh, we've been talking about Van Halen a lot on the channel lately. Why Can't This Be Love? Oh, excellent. Sammy and he, does it, <laughs> and he does it on his six-string acoustic, and it sounds like a Warren Zevon song. <laughs> he makes it sound like a Warren Zevon song. Well, I can't recall any love at all Telling you right from the start Girl It's got what it takes So tell me why can't this be love you know how he covered uh, Back in the High Life and made it a Warren Zevon song? Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting hearing, hearing him do it to edit. It's pretty cool. Oh, that's wild. Okay. Thank you for telling us about that. I'm going to look that up. You got it, man. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, you, you mentioned that, uh, you know, Warren, you know, is still a favorite of yours and you love hearing his music. Um, we all have our favorites, but we also have a few that, you know, we're not big on. Like we said, there's no albums that we felt were failures. But are there any are there any songs in Warren's catalog that you're not terribly moved by? Um, I think that the album Mutineer is a crucial one because Warren was particularly proud of it. It was one of the first and only albums where it was a one man show. I mean, I shouldn't say that there are other artists on it. And Duncan Ulrich was crucial to the engineering and stuff like that. But Warren had to fight tooth and nail for years to have create uh, complete creative control. Right. And he held up in very high regard two albums, Springsteen's Nebraska okay. and Bob Dylan's John Wesley Harding. Of all albums, that oh. one is one of, was one of his favorites. And that's not one you would have guessed. Right. 
but he he had called those albums personal statements by their authors and he viewed mutineer in the same regard i love it and there's some of my favorites on there but uh is it something said happened to a clown that one that is not always on my top 10 Okay, I'll be honest with you. I got to be in the mood to hear some of the, the weird Tom Waits instrumentation, like the clock and feel and stuff like that. Yeah. Sometimes when he gets a little out there, I'm not, I don't hate any of them, but I have yeah. to be in the mood for certain ones. But yeah, that, that, that was the first one that I thought of. Uh, I have to be in the mood for that. Oh, that's and, funny. Yeah, we, and, we talked about that one on the, on the pod. And I think I have and, similar uh, feelings as you. The last track on Transverse City is They Moved the Moon. That is a masterpiece of lyrics. It is a yeah. poem, but it is so dark and so depressing that I have to be in the right mind, mindset to hear it. And it's not because it's not a favorite. It's because that's a, that's a tough list. That's one right. of these real, real moody ones. There's stuff like that, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, well, we have had so much fun talking about all this Warren Zevon stuff. It's a blast, as you mentioned, man. You've also put out a book about John Bonham, can you tell us a little bit uh, about, uh, give us a tease about that book, because I'll, I'll tell oh. you this, I hope to read that book and then have oh. you back to talk about it. I'd love to be back, actually. You guys are awesome. Um, thank you again. I, I'm very appreciative that you had reached out, and I was looking forward to this a lot. Oh, uh, my likewise. Th that, that goes I mean, both ways. We appreciate thank it. Thank you. Uh, my second book was Beats, John Bonham and the Rise of Led Zeppelin, and it was the same publisher that was for uh, Hachette. Um, I started it one week after I finished Nothing's Bad Luck. I was on a runner's high, so I just ran with it. I knew Bonham was going to be next. Uh, I am a Led Zeppelin fan. They are one of my favorite rock bands. My favorite band is Queen, but that has been written about in so many different angles right. that Bonham didn't really have a big, thick, you know, analytical biography. And when I think of Zeppelin, the drums are the reason that I became a fan of the band. Love Plant, Love Page, all of them. When the levee breaks, the drum, right? Dude, when I heard the drums for the first time, that's when I wanted to listen to more Zeppelin. Sorry, I got to be honest. Yeah. And I think it's because Bonham had received so much bad press that he was closed off to journalists for much of his life and career that even though some of the horror stories are in the book, it was wonderful to, to be able to write about the good things that Bonham did also. You know, the stuff that did not get picked up in the papers, the people, the fans that he was wonderful to, the people that he gave their first thoughts to, things like that. Um, I, I like to think, hopefully I wrote the book that Bonham would maybe approved of, which is the same thing I could say about Warren. But I picked, uh, I picked John Bonham because I wanted to write a Zeppelin book, but I didn't want to write a book about the entire band necessarily. He's, he's the most fascinating of the band to me. So it was him. But I actually consider it a companion piece to Nothing's Bad Luck, oh. which may sound pretentious. It's not meant to. Yeah. It's that he and Warren were almost the same age, but from two different countries. They both had the same addictions, but one had a support system that helped him get over it, and the other one had a name. And when I say that, I'm not referring to the other members of the band. I'm not putting anyone down. I'm talking about industry people. You know, what, what was in the new Elvis movie? The only thing that matters is that, that this man goes out on stage. Yeah. There was a lot of that with Bonham as well. Oh. And uh, I think that at 32 years old to die the way that he did, Warren Zevon 
could and maybe, you know, for what how he was treating himself, should have been dead at 32 the same way he beat it. He yeah. beat it because he was he was also incredibly strong, but he also was surrounded by people that gave a shit. And with Bonham, his family gave a shit and his bandmates did, but they were making way too much money for them to for any of them to get the help that they desperately needed. That's my opinion. Right. Warren might also have lasted longer because he didn't become a superstar. Who knows what would have happened if the fame and the money had continued to flow and he could have had all those drugs and all the drinking without there having to be a stop to it. So to be honest with you, I look at the two books as companion pieces because they're from two different countries, but they had similar uh, influences musically. Similar, not exactly the same. But you also have one who kicked it and one who unfortunately did not. And Warren was also a singer-songwriter. And Bonham, to me, everything he had to say came out in the instrument. He was, an, he, was a, he was a composer of percussion. So it was a challenge to write the differences. But at the same time, those two books go together. To me, kind of says everything that I think I have to say about rock. Yeah. So if you like one, I hope you would like the other as well. Well, I sure like... Uh... I sure like this one, so I'm absolutely going to get my hands on a copy of uh, Beast. That sounds fantastic, and I appreciate uh, that yeah, so much. I can see how that would those would be companion pieces. So I will get that book, and hopefully you'll come back on for that. Uh, oh, looking absolutely. forward to the future, though. I mean, uh, you've written two phenomenal rock and roll uh, biographies here. Thank Are you. there more of those in your future, or and if not, what is in your future for writing? What can you share with us? I'm psyched about this. Uh, thanks to the two books that I've written, I was able to uh, introduce myself properly to the estate and the family of my very first hero in my life, uh, Elmore Leonard, the crime writer. When I was 11, he was my hero. I wanted to be a novelist before a biographer. And when I was 15, we had a correspondence because I sent him a short story of mine that he proofread and, and I eventually got to meet him. So uh, Elmore did live long enough to see my first short story when I was in my 20s, but he passed away before my first book came out. And I shared all of this with his family, and I'm very blessed that I just finished it on November 1st, but I am the authorized biographer for Elmore Leonard. And that book is called Cooler Than Cool, The Life and Work of Elmore Leonard, and that's for HarperCollins. Elmore would have turned 100 in 2025, and it would be coming out for his centennial. Whoa! Really, really fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you so much. It's not a music biography, but if you like the music of Warren Zevon, man, there are a lot of the same themes and scenarios in the books of Elmore Leonard. And I'll say this, because I can't help but always ask the same questions of different people, I can tell you Elmore Leonard's favorite, uh, his his favorite Warren Zevon song was Excitable Boy, (laughs) and his favorite Zeppelin song was Black Dog. Okay. Okay. And, and uh, Warren Zevon's favorite Elmore Leonard book was Rum Punch, which became Jackie Brown. Okay. Movie. Nice. And when he, when, he was, uh, when he was sick, when he was dying, uh, he was rereading it uh, when he was uh, going to doctor's appointments and things like that. He was rereading Rum Punch. So there's a mutual appreciation between those guys. So there's some commonalities. Well, that's terrific. Uh, I'm looking Thank forward so to much. that now too. So, congratulations on that. That's exciting. Thank you, guys. Uh, we'll, and and when when that does come out, let's get back in touch. I'll post that all over, uh, you know, our social media, and you can come back and talk about that one too. 
Uh, I'm very honored. Thank you for that. Yeah, I'd love to. No, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun talking with you guys. If I didn't run my mouth off too much, I'd love to come back, talk some more. Oh, this has been great. This has been this has been a lot of fun. And and again, for those listening, you know, I'm very picky about, you know, the the rock bios that I throw down for. But this one was one of the easiest uh, to, to give the thumbs up to. I was just so impressed by the research and also the lot. accessibility. You know, it's a very readable, enjoyable. It, uh, it, it, it points. It feels like you're in the room, you know, when we're, you're reading it. So all the compliments in the world for this book. Thank you so much. Awesome. Uh, great talking to both of you. I look forward to coming back. Thank you for the advocacy and for all the kind words. Can't wait to, to chat more. Chad, thank you again for your time. We really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. You know, there's no shortage of great content out there, so you choosing to spend some time listening to this show means quite a lot. If you're so inclined, please give this podcast a five-star rating and a positive review wherever you get your podcasts and share our links wherever you can. Or mention this show to anyone you know looking for a podcast recommendation. All of this helps us out a great deal, and I appreciate it. You can connect with us on social media, too. We are at Play That Podcast on Facebook, Threads, Blue Sky, and even TikTok. Or we are at Play That Rock and Roll on YouTube and Instagram. Please post a comment and say hello. Finally, Play That Rock and Roll is a proud member of the Pantheon podcast community. So if you're looking for more music podcasts beyond this one, trust me, start with Pantheon. You won't be disappointed. Otherwise, I appreciate any and all efforts you take to support us here at Play That Rock and Roll. Be sure to join us next time for more great music and stories from the world of classic rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.